As they say here, Pueblo Pequeño Infierno Grande, which is small town, big hell. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Interlibrary, a new podcast where each episode I interview people in a different country to explore and celebrate the good work being done in libraries around the world. My name is Craig, I'm a public librarian in rural Vermont in the United States. On the next episodes, the Kingdom of Bhutan and Nigeria. But right now, for the first episode, I spoke to four different organizations creating and supporting libraries in the country of Guatemala. So first, a quick rundown of the country through some data. There are about 16 million people in Guatemala and almost 52% of those people live in urban environments. This makes it the most populous country in Central America. Almost half the population is under the age of 19. Around 60% of Guatemalans are Latino-Latina with almost 40% of Mayan descent. The government recognizes 23 indigenous languages, including 21 Mayan languages, such as Quiche, Kekchi, and Cacchiquel, to name only three, but there are a lot of dialects of these languages. About 32% of people work in agriculture, mostly sugarcane, coffee, bananas, and vegetables, and less than 20% in industries such as textiles and clothing, the majority in some form of services. 84% of men are part of the labor force outside of the home, but only 42% of women. Taking over a five-year period, Guatemala has an infant mortality rate of 26.9 per 1,000 births, and that is the 78th highest in the world. Life expectancy is around 72 years of age. It has one of the highest rates of child malnutrition in the world. More than half of the country lives below the poverty line. Almost a quarter lives in extreme poverty, and this disproportionately affects the country's indigenous populations. Interestingly, publications in languages such as Quiche or Kekchi are rare and more expensive because of the translation costs. They're written using standardized writing systems created by the Guatemalan Academy of Mayan Languages to get around the huge number of dialects of those individual languages. Bilingual education, that's indigenous Spanish, was actually formalized during the peace process that ended the civil war as were bilingual official documents. It spends about 6% of GDP on health, that's 101st in the world, and less than 3% of GDP on education, that's 139th. It has a 76% literacy rate, which is the lowest in Central America. Interestingly, Guatemala receives more remittances than any other country in Central America, most of which is sent from the United States. That's almost one-tenth of its entire GDP in remittances. Almost 40 years of civil war ended in 1996. It was one of the most brutal on the continent. More than 200,000 were killed, and most of those were indigenous people. There are about 19 million cell phones in the country, but only 34.5% of people have internet access. About 1.6 million people have no access to electricity. Its murder rate is currently the 10th highest in the world, according to the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. These are some useful and alarming numbers, but don't forget that these are still isolated data points meant only to give a suggestion of challenges faced by a country, not to give a picture of what it's like to live in that country day to day for an individual with their own particular intersection of social circumstances. So, on with the interviews. Okay, so this is in four parts for four different organizations. Part one, the international NGO, the Rican Foundation. Part two, Guatemalan NGO, Probigua. Part three, Papa Guatemala. And part four, the Guatemalan Library Association. So, for the first episode of Interlibrary, on to part one. The Rican Foundation is an NGO that builds public libraries in Guatemala and Honduras and was founded in 2000 by two former Peace Corps volunteers. Rican has built 12 libraries in Guatemala as well as 53 in Honduras. 
It has two executive staff, a regional director who's a librarian specializing in community development, and president and CEO Bill Cartwright, who spoke to me via Skype from a slightly noisy airport in Honduras. Bill is a human rights lawyer with 20 years experience working in the Americas and was the Honduras country director before becoming Recon's CEO. Recon builds libraries, but it doesn't rush in with a building and some books. It has a three-pronged model. Recon is one of those parts. The others are the municipality and the community itself. The Recon Foundation builds libraries and equips them and does all of the training and ongoing training for the libraries themselves and then also provides in-house programming and then we help find outside donors to bring in specialized projects. Usually, or sometimes it's a local company, somebody who will help provide the land for perpetual use as a community library because we've worked through a whole process of learning by our past mistakes. It doesn't become like many other development projects, just sort of this empty building. And then all of these things have to be voted into municipal acts or municipal legislation. And then when you finally come down to communities who would be able to build a library and provide certain things like sand, gravel, unqualified labor. To do this library, to put something in, to invest themselves as a community, they come back. And often we get the comment, oh, so the richest community gets the library. And that's not the case at all. We work with some very, very economically poor libraries. Uh, It really matters, is the community in on this? Are they going to go in and make this successful? Because it is going to depend on this library volunteer board that is formed during construction. And as we build, training goes on. And if the community fails at some point, we have to stop construction because we consider the library building and equipment that's a financial and a logistics issue. But that's not going to make it successful. What makes it successful is if the community adopts it as its own. So the land is arranged. Recon funds construction with local donations of materials. The community elects a volunteer board and collection development begins. In the beginning, the collection can be between one and 3,000 books, depending on the size of the library. Selection and quality of the books is done via our librarian. Uh, the local culture ministries of what their selected local literature readings are and also the library town themselves has choices. We've had issues with towns, for example, uh, even down to we don't want Harry Potter books on our shelves because we don't want witchcraft. And so the collection decisions lie ultimately with the community. The books will be mostly Spanish, some in indigenous languages, less in English. Recon does have a program that brings locals together to tell stories in local indigenous languages, such as Quiche. Because of the various hundreds of dialects of Quiche, for example, in Guatemala, um, the Language Academy puts it in a neutral Quiche. uh, And then local illustrators will illustrate the story. We edit and publish the book in a very, very high quality so that uh, it's something that communities can be very proud of. And of course, there's a new librarian hired from within that community. Most of our librarians are not necessarily even teachers. They're volunteers who have a certain level of of education, but they have to be able to manage a library on a daily basis and do youth and definitely be trained heavily in reading programming. That person is the one who opens the door and often closes the door on these rural libraries. These librarians who do not receive large salaries, they receive these stipends from local governments. And we provide as much training and ongoing support we can because these librarians often have a lot of demands on them, and we try to to motivate them and support them as best we can. When we train a librarian, it's often a two-week program for the first one, and then there's intensive reading 
training that follows. Uh, we often do it in a group because there's much more benefit in a group because there's a lot of not just training or, or information of what you do. A lot of our trainings involve hands-on scenarios or exercises or practices. And then librarians are often sent to successful libraries uh, where the librarian who's had years of experience can sort of impart their experiences and their um, best practices or successes. Each community is very, very different. The Recon model succeeds when all three parts of this model, Recon, community, municipality, hold up their end of the bargain. In fact, when they reach out to interested communities in the planning stages, many municipalities lose interest when they realize the financial and logistical burdens a public library can bring. And sometimes this can happen after the fact, as in the public library in the town of Poramos, northwest of the town of Antigua. That board had amazing relations with the mayor in Paramos for two terms. Unfortunately, another party won. Uh, as often happens, it's from an opposition party to the existing board. Uh, there's also a family feud that happened. And the mayor decided uh, we're no longer participating. We're rescinding the agreement and we're not supporting the library anymore. The easier path for Recon as a foundation would be, well, what we're going to do is go work with the new mayor and the old board will be fired. But this is a community library, not our library. We don't make that decision. As long as the existing board without municipal support is working hard and the town so supports that board, we will continue to work with them. Obviously, that means a much weaker library without municipal support. I'd hate to say it, but the town strategy is we're going to wait till the next election, till this mayor is out. But our strategy is, no, we have to entice this mayor with new projects, new goals, and show the benefit to the municipality of supporting it, whether there's a family feud or not. As they say here, Pueblo Pequeño Infierno Grande, which is small town, big hell. Again, Bill stresses the importance of these decisions coming from within the community, not just top-down from an international donor. Interestingly, one of the first challenges Rican always encounters with a new library community in Guatemala is conceptual. A modern library in Central America, which is a sort of an old traditional Spanish or European model library with a closed stacks and you hand a paper through a window and somebody will hand you something and you can sit there and read it right there, but you have to give it back, which is why we allied ourselves for four years with the Gates Foundation in a movement called Beyond Access, which really tried to advocate what is a modern library and why government should support these libraries, because they do so much more than just homework. So that's two views of libraries, an older tradition of homework and silence in gated books or a newer idea of responsive community engagement. The Beyond Access Project, which is funded by the Gates Foundation and IREX, defines new ways that public libraries can serve the needs of their respective communities. It's done a lot of good work all around the world in promoting literacy and the work of libraries, and I'm sure we'll encounter them again in future episodes. This conceptual change, though, means that these libraries not only offer books for loan, but programs in literacy, small businesses, health, and outreach beyond the physical library itself. 90% of the cases, the library is the main meeting place for students, adults, workers, coffee cooperatives, doctors groups. It is the meeting place for communities. There's no such other building in the community. For a country encountering rising drug trafficking, uh, higher murder rates, and gang violence, these libraries are welcome neutral spaces that can offer alternate ways to spend time, and these small libraries rely on volunteers. The Recon Libraries in its two countries of operation has over 6,400 volunteers in addition to their paid librarians. I asked Bill Cartwright what he saw as the main challenges facing public libraries, their patrons, their partners, and their librarians in the future in Guatemala. 
He came, he said, down to two words, corruption and money. The books are published on the walls because both countries, Honduras and Guatemala, tend to be very corrupt. We want everyone to see the income and expenditures every month. I think the number one problem in the region is corruption, and I think libraries take a second tier as far as priorities, both at a municipal and on a national level. I think on a municipal level, health and infrastructure, for example, are huge issues. And so when you say, hey, I want a library, a lack of understanding of what a modern library is and what it can do, the advocacy part is much weaker. And so there's sort of a lot of kicking the can around about who should take care of us. Everybody loves a library. Not a lot of people want to pay for the library. That was Bill Cartwright, CEO and president of Recon Foundation. Now, we go to the town of Antigua in the central highlands of Guatemala, where I spoke via noisy Skype to Rigoberto Zamora, founder and head of ProBigua, a small organization that has been building first public libraries and then schools in poor areas of Guatemala since 1990. It was originally called Proyecto Bibliotecas Guatemala, or the Guatemala Library Project, where Zamora equipped mobile libraries, buses, to travel to remote mountain areas, but that soon became building libraries at the schools in those places and then building the schools themselves. Due to my embarrassing lack of Spanish, we spoke through a translator, Probigua student coordinator and receptionist, Myrna Ortiz. So for Probigua, the process for a new library starts with a letter, and Probigua receives a lot of requests. He received many letters asking for help. So he... He goes to visit the place, and if if she if he thinks they need it, they really need it, he helps the place. For example, uh, we work with a commu- very small community in the south of Guatemala, and it's very small and it's very difficult to get there. They don't have uh, highways; it's uh, only rocks, and it's very difficult. We need a, a pickup with a double traction to get there. Double traction is, of course, four-wheel drive, and Probigua needs it. Guatemala has over 10,000 kilometers of unpaved roads, and that's mountainous territory. And that's almost 60% of all roads in the country. Probigua had two buses, and I'll link to photos of them on the website. They once used to run books to rural communities before they built a permanent library. These buses would navigate these rough roads. So building on their success with these bibliobuses, Rigoberto Zamora and his volunteers moved from mobile libraries to physical ones. At the moment, we have uh, 16 libraries around Guatemala. The first uh, library is located in Yepocapa. Yepocapa is in the central highlands, about 30 or so miles west of Guatemala City. I asked them why they thought there was no government help for these kinds of literacy building projects. The, the government forget that places because they are very, very poor people. So when they ask for donation or ask for building schools, the government doesn't do that. Remember, Guatemala has the lowest literacy rate in Central America, and it's these library NGOs like ProBigua and Rican that are creating these public libraries around the country because of central and state government inaction. Rigoberto Zamora and Mena Ortiz don't have a theory about federal inaction. We don't know why. I think that's something we can all understand. They're a lower-budget organization than Recon, which is an international NGO, so their collection comes from local donations. And they update these collections every year, but these updates depend on the quantity of those donations. Every year, we provide new books to the libraries. 
sometimes we don't receive many donations, so we try to divide it in the other libraries. Only Spanish. And sometimes books for children are in Spanish and English, but like basic vocabulary of English. We have literature in Spanish and books for children. Like, it depends on the age of the people. For example, from six to ten, we have uh, small tales, like, uh, for example, Harry Potter, some easy lectures. And for the teenagers, we have literature in Spanish. And of course, there's a librarian. That he chose um, a one person with experience working in libraries or a teacher because they know how to to treat the children. So Probigua's focus is on encouraging reading in areas with very low literacy rates. So teachers are a natural choice for working with kids. Their programming and collections are more traditional, based around reading, borrowing, and aimed at filling these service gaps created by lack of funding into rural education and an alarmingly low literacy rate. They installed computer centers in schools, and if local infrastructure allowed, this would come with internet access. This costs money, and to help fund this work, Zamora established a Spanish-language school in the town of Antigua, where people from around the world, many from the U.S., go to learn. They travel to the town, stay with local families, practice Spanish every day, eat local food, meet local people, sometimes help with the work. Probigua also runs online Spanish lessons, and the money from these classes taught by local trainee teachers funds the work. And people outside of Guatemala noticed the Gates Foundation, of course a very prominent donor to international libraries, gave them their Access to Learning Award in 2001. And this was huge. It came with a $250,000 grant. And they expanded their activities to more libraries, more tech centers, and eventually to building schools. We have the main project in, um, in a place called Yepocapa, near the volcano. <laughs> and that volcano? That's the Volcán de Fuego, which means fire, and it erupted on June 3rd as I was recording this episode, but more on that in a moment. In 2009, uh, he started to work with that children. Firstly, it was from the like the government, uh, no, the authority. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. From the church of that place the, at the beginning. But they couldn't uh, support them anymore. So, ¿quién habló con usted? Para decir, El obispo. The bishop asked Rigoberto if he wanted to be in charge of the of the school, and he accepted. The We man. have 350 children in elementary school. 250 in básico. in the in the high school. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, the school had a lot of changes in structural and also educational uh, with uh, teachers graduated from the university uh, with specials of math and science and we have the best education in the town. The Yepokapa school is not free but this gives Probigua leeway to shape the education outside of the state model. They help out with the cost as much as they can. A hundred quetzales, which is like twelve dollars monthly. I uh, yeah, the most of the children are, have uh, the scholarship there, like the seventy-five percent. Thirty percent go to to study for a career, uh, the basic 
and the 3% goes to the university. Let's return to that volcano. The Volcán de Fuego erupted on June 3rd and June 5th with an ash column 15 kilometers high. 113 people have been reported dead so far with many more still missing, all from fast-moving pyroclastic flows and mud, most of them in towns south of the volcano. None of the towns mentioned in the podcast lost lives as far as I know, but identification and aid efforts continue across the affected areas. Probigua has adapted over time and their focus has changed from buses to libraries and now to schools. I asked Mr. Zamora about his vision for the future of the organization. Uh, his vision is to have the, the best uh, educational place in Yepokapa, complete and with all the, the materials the children need to study and have the best uh, high education. Quality education for many people in the future. That was Rigoberto Zamora and Myrna Ortiz from Probigua, based in Antigua. Okay, Organization 3, PAVA. I spoke to the board's president, Cecilia Doherty, and she told me that PAVA has been around for a long time. PAVA was born in 82 or 83 as a, as a one-year emergency aid, uh, relief action during the conflict that affected Guatemala for about 36 years. So a lot of people in the villages were torn in between this conflict and they for one or the other reason, they were left with nothing. They started giving them seeds and, and tools to plant, replant their food and just specific aid things. And, and, and then the whole need for further, more established long-term actions was requested from Pava. So Pava, instead of just being one year, just stayed. So it started building infrastructure like uh, community centers or schools or um, water systems that were tubing water from springs into the communities. And at some point, we also built a few bridges. And that lasted until about 2008 when we switched completely our core to processes, to educational processes. What we bought was a bus and the bus would visit communities back in 2008. And we had four develop the need for a, 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 like established library in their communities. They told us they wanted that. So we started working with those four that ended being just three. So like Probigua, their book buses changed into brick and mortar libraries, all in the department of Chimaltenango in the Southern Highlands. In fact, Yapocapa, if you remember, that's where Probigua has their big school, is also in Chimaltenango department. Bill Carrad of Rican talked about changing the local people's concepts of libraries away from caged books to a community service model, but this was very different. Our challenge was that in our very small villages, people would not even have the concept or the access, or they never dreamt before, I think, that they will have that kind of service in their town. Pava works this community model into the name of the libraries. They don't call it a biblioteca, a library, they call it something else. Well, our libraries, it's... Um, mix of community center and library. Uh, we work in very small villages where some, most of the time there's no uh, like official buildings or, or um, like downtown center. It's very small. 
the library that we call Comuniteca, which is, um, it, it has two words, the word community and the word biblioteca would be library in Spanish. So a Comuniteca will be the place where many things are happening, a space to gather. They have the books and it functions like a regular library lending books. And we held preschool uh, two or three times a week, depending on the place. Because in most of these areas, preschool is not an available service from government yet. So uh, we are making sure that kids will go into first grade with much better skills. Also have leadership programs for young people in the library. Uh, so it, it functions as many things. Um, we have sometimes women's programs. So, so it's not just giving the space, but also acting on it as leading programs in the space as well. So it has both. I love that. And the town commits to both creating and supporting the Comunitecas in the towns of La Loma, Panimachevac, and Pachichil. Over the years, we have built um, three buildings, one for each. And also the building, it's it comes with, you know, agreement and also hours of work from the people in the community. They help build the actually build the Comuniteca. It has a lot of participation from the, the, the community. And one of these libraries is very colorful due to the involvement of a renowned architect. You can see pictures on, on the website. I should say that the call briefly drops toward the end in this clip. Someone at the board got a really great architect from Guatemala to do this design. And he actually, he donated his um, design. And he was on top of the building, as, uh, on the process of building as well. He and his wife, they have an architectural company, and he was involved with us in the process as well, seeing that everything was going to, I mean, the outcome. And uh, as yeah, it's a very distinctive uh, building, used bamboo and for the doors with uh, doors as colorful as, as the textiles in our highlands are. That was his idea. If you didn't catch it at the end, that word was bamboo. Papa doesn't bring librarians into the Comuniteca, it trains them up, but also draws on expertise from their board. We have trained uh, local people in the community to take care of the library. I mean, young people, young girls, especially. We have boys, but it's mostly uh, girls, we'll say 15, 16. We train them to do the preschool activities and the, and everything that's happening in there. They are um, supervised by our field director. We, our staff is Marta, the field director, and Araceli, who does the management and accounting. That's it. At the board, we have uh, Frances as one of the board members, and she's a Montessori teacher. And so she's been the one that put together this, um, like a preschool program that is not necessarily, you don't need a teacher. You can have someone that's not a skilled teacher or doesn't have the titles. We're trying to bring the capacities into the community. The idea is that these libraries will remain even if Pava is not there. Books are hard to come by when you're as small as Pava, so they improvise. There's uh, like thrift stores here in Guatemala. We discovered they had children books, very cheap ones, good ones. Those hard, um, the ones for the babies, you know, that are very expensive. We would buy them there in those thrift shops. And then we got a lot of uh, donations from people we know around. And then there was a big box in a big mall in the city and people could throw books there for donation. But I think half of our donation was trash. So, yeah, we move around. But they do have some indigenous books. We have a few. We have a few. We have some healthy and uh, on health and medicine and some stories, but not a big, big, big collection, I'll say, compared to what you can find in Spanish. And they have many programs, some from other NGOs who use the Comuniteca as a base, but others are in-house, like the preschool and this one. 
We have uh, the health and that program is being taught by Marta. What we're doing now is a two-year program, one-and-a-half-year program with the mothers where they have five topics. They have um, self-esteem, they have hygiene, nutrition, home economy. I forgot the fifth one, but actually we're graduating our first group in on, on July the 24th in La Loma. So what we try to do with them is just that they learn a few things that can improve their lives, their children's lives as well. Not all the Comunitecas have computers, but all have access depending on the existing infrastructure in the town. In Panimachavac, we have a lot. It's a lot. It's, uh, we, we don't have them in the Comuniteca because the community already had 16 in a community operated, I mean, computer room that was not belonging to the school as well. So we made... Um, an agreement with the local authority so they can use those. And then we have four in Pachichil and we have um, two in La Loma. There's no internet access in, in on any of the three communities yet. Rekin has this program that, uh, that you navigate as you're in internet and it has a lot of, um, uh, of information and uh, it has like Khan Academy tutorials and um, Gutenberg Library and a few of those big blocks of information and you install that you can do a, a, like an, an internal network or individual computer as you like and then you can navigate as you were in, as if you were in internet so they are training how to search anyway even without the connection but cecilia repeatedly talked about encouraging involvement and leadership in the comunitecas by the young people of these towns panamachavac Comuniteca recently had a Lego robotics program inspired by a local group, which is something I do at my library, funded by another NGO with which Celia is involved. Uh, these kids entered the global first Lego League competition and ended up winning their way to the internationals in Houston. They were also in the indigenous Cachiquel area, and we had to get the kids an vi- American visa and the passport like crazy because they went to Houston to an, like a world championship. And, uh, of course, they didn't do, uh, it were like 90 out of 120, but there was a prize called Against All Odds from the judges, and they were given that. The village, the kids are from a village that's very similar to where Pava works. It's a small, rural, little town. It's, it was an amazing story. <laughs> this kind of uncommon experience of learning things they wouldn't ordinarily know, of seeing things they wouldn't see, is essential for programs in Pava. These are isolated highland communities. In our system, you have after sixth grade, you have three more years that will be middle school, and then you have two more years to complete the high school. So the problem in Guatemala is the last two years. Three percent of kids in the rural areas of Guatemala have access to those last two years of high school. That makes it very difficult for people. I mean, it, it just opens a huge gap between city people or big town people and the access that everybody else would have in the highlands. The opportunities, I believe, are very, very different. I'm a mother of teenagers and I, through the process, I've seen how different my kids' um, chances are, you know, and opportunities compared to any of these kids who we're working with, the high school scholarship kids are the same age as mine. So so I can, you know, you, you see how different they're choices are. So when you make sure that to parents that they'll have the money for the transportation and a few extras for other things, uniforms, or it makes a big difference, I think. What we ask for them is that they they come to this uh, program that we have, leadership program, where we are doing, we're closing the circle by having the kids maybe teaching the moms better nutrition 
practices for the little ones. And so they are getting involved in their community. And our goal is really, I mean, we do want a great students, but the most important thing is that they become active leaders in the community to improve their community in the near future. The country has a lot of centralization in the city, in many ways, you know, when you need to do papers, go get some papers. It's improved in the last 20 years, but still, and it's just a lack of good government service in a way that, I mean, it's a lot of mountains and the hard access sometimes. Um, language could be also a, a, another barrier as um, bilingual teachers would not be as common maybe, or lack of good paid jobs in these areas make um, divide the country into, there's poverty in the city as well, but there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of low income families living in the highlands as well. So I think when I speak of poverty, I think that it's not that you don't have the money. Sometimes you don't have the information to make the right connection to go here. So that's part of what the libraries want to do there. We want to come in and through us, they can connect to other ideas and ways to solve what they need to solve in their lives. You know, that's how we, we place a lot of hope in these young ones who are going to the scholarships. Okay, so this last story from Cecilia Doherty. Remember Bill Cartwright's Pueblo Pequeño in Fiono Grande? Small town, big hell. Well, Papa had it too. But these kids from the library that they work with in the leadership program, they worked it out the right way. Right now we have 25 kids from the three villages we are working. And we are giving them a, not a, a full scholarship, but some money every year. So we're sh- we make sure that they have the money for the bus, for the I mean, transportation is, is maybe the highest expense they have, and they have they are traveling every day to nearby school. Except for Panimachavac, they have a middle school. Also in Guatemala, the authority, local authorities change every year. So this group likes you, next group doesn't like you. But usually it's every two years. So we had a, also a bad guy for two years. <laughs> Didn't like Pava. He kicked us out. So we said, okay, we closed. So we closed it for a while. And then our scholarship teenagers went to the local authorities, stood there and said, we want to open it. Oh, because they also, with one of their projects, they they also want to, this another organization that was giving money to the best project that will improve community so they won second place so they had five thousand dollars with that check on the hand they went to the authorities and said we want the library back and <laughs> so now it's open because the, it was the kids who managed to convince the authorities and open it papa are a small organization just three small public libraries but even they find fundraising in guatemala increasingly competitive we thought we were had to close in, you know two three years ago very few NGOs would be in Guatemala, and all of a sudden it's full of people, NGOs all over the place, and getting the money became harder even in the U.S. And but we're surviving, and and you know with with two people on staff, and it's 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 possible since we are trying to pass as much as we can to the community. We're small. We're not like this big fancy, but what we do, we we make sure it's you know deep and. And that, that is them doing it. We're, we're in the backstage. That was Cecilia Doherty of Pava, where small differences add up. Part four. Part of capacity building is connections. A librarian knows another librarian who knows another. They teach each other something and then teach that thing to someone else. The knowledge spreads, the network grows. 
but these connections depend on infrastructure and organization. I spoke to Valentina Santa Cruz and Rahina de la Vega, president and vice president, respectively, of the Guatemala Library Association, about their efforts to connect librarians across the boundaries of geography, education, and the digital divide. Rahina did a lot of the translating, although both spoke English in times, and they had a lot to say. So the, the association is going to be 70 years. We have people from different library fields. We have school teach, I mean, school librarians, specialized university. librarians, university librarians. The university um, librarians is, to, is the, 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 the biggest. Uh-huh. Yeah, the university librarians are the, the biggest group. Right now we're working on how to get more librarians from different fields, uh, people from the Rikin uh, Association, from Provigua. So we're trying to get uh, librarians from the communities, okay? Because right now we only have people from the from the, the capital. We have invited them to to become associate of associates of our association by contacting Rikin. Pero las distancias de sus comunidades les hace muy difícil participar. But the problem is that they cannot participate because of the distance of their communities with the city. She wants to get in touch with them going to their communities for them to know what the association is about and invite them to, to join us. We are trying to use technology to connect with them, but they have a connectivity problems. So that makes it difficult to get in touch with them. Okay. Let's for a moment consult the ITU's Global Development Index from 2017. So the ITU is the International Telecommunications Union, which used to be the International Telegraph Union, a branch of the UN that develops ICT standards, allocates radio spectrum, satellite orbit, and also compiles international data on internet access and use. The report from 2017, and there's a link on the website to a great visualization, evaluates a country's access, use, and skill development. Each of those three sub-indices is made up between three and five indicators, and these numbers are then compiled to create a single value that can be ranked internationally. Of the three sub-indices, access and use are weighted at 40% of the final number, with skills at 20%. It's really interesting to look through. Now, Guatemala is ranked 125th out of 176 countries. Its percentage of households with internet access is 20.5%, and individuals using the internet is 34.5%. It's a huge divide. Like Cecilia Doherty, Rahina and Valentina are talking a lot about the difficulties of communicating across geography and digital divides, but their big challenge is how to share their professional knowledge and create professional development opportunities with such minimal networks and low access. So they're actively reaching out to the organizations I talked to today, but they hadn't heard of PAVA. Can you tell, tell us who is the PAVA? Because I don't know this organization. Okay. Ah, okay. So we're going to try to contact them. That's so great. So they told me about the organization and how it works. And we have three general uh, assemblies, assemblies or reunions with uh, the, all the members three times a month, a year. Well, the, the big problem that we have is that uh, the members don't come in. <laughs> I asked if they had many men in the organization. It took them a minute. ¿Cuántos hombres y cuántas mujeres tenemos oh. en la asociación? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> okay, we right now we have like five, five or ten men in the association, and the rest are women. 
<laughs> so they have professional development and information sharing at their meetings, but they're also very excited at the possibility of legislation that could fund libraries and librarian training across the country. Last year, there was a, a group of people who uh, wrote the law, the library law, and they presented it to the Congress, but it was uh, just uh, received and they didn't do anything about it. So right now we are trying to give the, the follow-up for this law, the library law. Okay, if the law is passed, all the, the libraries will have a support, a, a legal support, and all the, the members of all the people who work in a library would have to study the library in the library school, right? Because right now there are many libraries who are being managed or directed by people who do not have any technical knowledge about libraries. If the law is passed, we also would uh, be involved in the creation of the library system because there is no library system in Guatemala. That would help us to, to have a, a budget to, to build libraries and to support librarians in Guatemala. And the other problem is that uh, laborally talking, the librarians are not registered or, or are not recognized as professionals in the civil department. Uh -huh. And the other thing would be that we would have a, a dignified salary as a professional, as a librarian, right? They do not consider us as professionals. That's the problem. But again comes the problem of the rural, urban and digital divides. Uh, the idea would be that the, we have to ask the school, the library school, to uh, extend its uh, services or its uh, courses to the rural area to support this, to these librarians who are in very far communities, right? And the best way would be that the school goes to these to these areas, and having a, a law uh, would would um, force the school to open different branches at different communities, right? As they said last year, the proposed legislation languished. I asked them if they thought it had a better chance this year. We hope so, but it depends on the political moment and if we have some influence in the Congress. And they're lobbying to present their arguments. Yeah, in this moment, yes. Yeah, in this moment, yes. We have identified two or three politicians and we are asking them to for an interview so we can present them the law and express them our intentions and objectives. Guatemala has one library school in Guatemala City and no national library system. So the ABG is very much aware of its position in its region, Central America, and the advantages of communication between the various national associations. We are also trying to uh, revive <laughs> or to give a follow-up to the Federation of Central American Associations. It was started like six years ago, but it stopped. So we are trying to con give a continuation to that. Uh, Guatemala's situation is similar to the rest of 
uh, the countries in Central America except Costa Rica. Costa Rica is the only one who has a law and all the benefits for the librarians and they also have a, a library system, right? They also have two library schools. The rest of Central American countries are working on them, okay? And Guatemala is kind of in the last position, <laughs> right? So we are working hard to overcome this. Okay. And Nicaragua just recently opened its library school. So they are trying to, to uh, develop, right? Uh, Honduras doesn't have a library school and El Salvador has two, I think two library schools. No, only one? Okay, they only have one library school, but they have a lot of of uh, support and their organization is very strong. And beyond Central America, the ABG is working with IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations. Right now we are participating in with IFLA. Uh, oh, okay, we're trying to teach members about the, the IFLA's uh, objectives. And this is focused on what IFLA is uh, managing, that uh, the development has to be part of the libraries, the library support for the communities. So right now, IFLA is working very hard on two initiatives, the global vision and libraries for the development of the communities through the, uh, the development objectives, sustainable development objectives that IFLA is uh, promoting. Uh, we... Uh, Nosotros siempre usamos el ejemplo de las bibliotecas de la Rique. We always use uh, the Rican libraries as an example of this type of development. De cómo las bibliotecas pueden apoyar. How libra libraries could can help the, the development of a community. So these are the Sustainable Development Goals, a framework of 17 interconnected goals from the UN that's part of their 2030 agenda. IFLA promotes and encourages libraries to look at their work in terms of these goals. Some of them are obviously relevant, like quality education, strong institutions and infrastructure, but libraries around the globe have been using the 17 SDGs to develop programs around sustainability, health and gender equality and more, and Valentina and Regina were excited about the role they can play in developing library practice across Guatemala. This is something that will come up again in future episodes. So following on from that, I asked Valentina and Regina about the role of libraries in a future Guatemala. So we, we believe that Guatemala is a country that is a going on a changing process, and we consider that libraries has have a very important role in the development of the communities and the development of the country. <laughs> That was Valentina Santa Cruz and Regina de la Vega of the Guatemalan Library Association. And that was the first episode of Interlibrary. Thanks for listening. This week's music was Blind Love Dub by Jerris featuring Cara Square and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. There's a link to the song on the website. You can download Interlibrary from iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or directly from the website, which is interlibrarypod.com. That's P-O-D.com. 
Next episode, I talk to librarians and NGOs working in Bhutan, a constitutional monarchy in the Himalayas with a population of 750,000 people that has had open elections only since 2008. There's a ton of good work there and I hope you'll join me.